episode of Source of Uncertainty. My name is Kyle Swisher. And I'm Robert Standifer. And uh, Merry Christmas to y'all. Yeah, and say hello to Seven. <laughs> seven! Yeah, seven episodes. Um, I'm so excited every time we do an episode of this, Kyle. You know, I know. I say you, that, I, I you say really, every time. You're really jacked up tonight, too. It's, I'm a little bit, yeah. This is like take uh, 14 for us. Well, I'm in Portland, you know. Mm-hmm. You've been cooped in up in a car. I was in, yeah, I was in my wife's Jeep, Jeep Gladiator all the way down here. I'm in a 110-year-old Victorian house in Portland where, not far from where Buchla was for a while, mm. um, in Grants Pass. So well, that's kinda, a that's a little bit further. It's closer than where I live now. <laughs> I mean, that's true. And Todd Barton isn't too far away, I think. I'm closer to Nathan Moody because he's down in California. <laughs> so, so I'm just feeling it, man. Feeling yeah. nuclear right yeah. now. Yeah. All right. I love it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, this uh, should be going out uh, just after Christmas, um, depending on how much eggnog is consumed, so, uh, when this will actually get out. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I think I'm gonna throw some uh, Christmas music here and there throughout the episode. You should do the if you had a recording of your performance at Substation last year, because I remember you did. You're a mean one, Mister Grinch, on your music usual. Yeah, I've got I've um I did a whole series of about twelve days of uh, Christmas in Bukla Patch form a couple of years ago, and. Uh, so I've got the recordings of those. So maybe, yeah, maybe I'll throw that one up at the end or something like that. That'd be cool. Um, what have you, uh, what's been going on with you over well, the last month? <laughs> anyone who's ever listened to a word I've said knows that I've been having preset, preset lockup woes. I have too many modules, Kyle. I just have too many, too many. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, I have been, I've been testing the new firmware for the 287E, the Jardin de Saint Concrete. You know that module? I've got one of those. Yeah. <laughs> My Francais is a bien. Um, so I've been testing that, and I bought new preset, just stuff. Just all these things have happened. Too many variables. Anybody who's a scientist knows that uh, when you're doing testing, you introduce new variables with every test. It's You're never going to figure it out. So anyway, what I've done is very satisfactorily moved to my 18 panels, my SA module SA18 panel, and my eight panel smart cab, which is like that that little portable cabinet from Kane Association. Yeah. So I have all my clones, or I'm sorry, my knockoffs and my <laughs> original modules, like my Benjolin and my Zero Oscillator, and uh, my Kane modules are in there, and then my sequencers and oscillators and such are in my my big case. So. I I left it on for three hours and oh. kept changing presets over the over that three hour period and had no problems. So I'm hopeful that. And you know the funny thing is that I saved presets, but I'd never switched them during a performance or during a recording. I just saved my place so that when I turn it off and then turn it back on, it's, it's all the things. Yeah. yeah, but that's exactly what happened with any of my analog synthesizers. You turn I, was it just, off. I was just going to say, hey, guess what <laughs> Guess what happens when I turn my stuff off, Robert, and I turn it yeah. back on? That's why I was like, man, right Luke, I wonder if Kyle has this problem. <laughs> nope. And I thought, I'm going to sneak into your house and turn the knobs 
on all your stuff <laughs> while you're sleeping. And so you can get up the next day and be like, what happened? Yeah, some like, yeah, m- mischievous uh, Bukla Goblin came through. But I did learn a couple of cool things from that I wanted to share that were neat. One, um, as we, we talked about with our guest today, all of the presets for a module are stored in the module, which makes sense, of course, but only going through this and talking to some folks did I think about that. Because, you know, a module will store one preset without a preset manager. Mm-hmm but it will actually have all of its presets stored in the module. So if you take that module and put it in a different system with the preset manager and go to, you know, preset three or whatever, it will load the the settings for that preset because it's stored in the module. So I thought that was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, just some, some technical bucle stuff for all of our friends here, the preset manager pulls the modules and says, who are you and what do you know? Are you there? And each of the modules, it pulls for every every module that the preset manager knows about. And then it, if a module is there, it sends like this acknowledgement. And the modules tell the preset manager, I'm here. And so the preset manager knows to store that preset. But after that, not, it, it's not like they're constantly talking to each other or anything. So lockups are caused by a module sending a message to the preset manager and the preset manager isn't you know able to do anything with it. So you have all these different types of lockups. Gotcha. And that's just one of them. So, so it's like so, kinda... so you got a new student in the class that you've thrown in. <laughs> yeah. And it's not on the roll call sheet. And they're like, wait, who are you? And then, <laughs> just... <laughs> and then the teacher jumps out the window. It's like what what happened? Yeah, it's kind of like when you say Kyle Swisher and and the teacher says Kyle Swisher and you say present and then they say Kyle Swisher then there's a lockup. <laughs> <laughs> but so it was, you know, an interesting experience to say the least. And I started to get a little worried that. Interesting. I, to... I mean, you're like, I would say maddening. <laughs> I went to, I went to a dark place. Um, yeah. Every other time we'd check up <laughs> on you. It was like, Whoa, you doing all right, buddy? Like, <laughs> man, it was, it was, I went through a period of grief. Yeah. But anyway, that that's over now. So. I can I can get back to making music with it. That's good. That's the yeah. Uh, so that's the most important topic for this episode. By the way, you can just stop listening now. Everything else after this is it's just gravy. <laughs> um, so I want to uh shout out. Obviously, we had our um friends Chip and Mark on the show from uh, the Mems Project, um, last episode, and the website that they had put up the uh, memsproject.info was like just kind of coming out right when we put the episode up so we hadn't seen much of it yet but um yeah they're putting up some really cool stuff and um one of the things we we chatted about was the like the 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 weird 300 series modules uh, yeah. um and that had to do with like interfacing with a uh, slide projector and um being able to like advance and um and like crossfade between uh t- between two of them or something like that um and so they did get a picture up of the the 321 which is the crossfader uh which yeah looks like you're able to set up um two of these theoretically two of these slide projectors and control it with uh with your bukla so 
That's so cool. It's pretty, yeah, it's pretty bonkers. And and they're getting some other cool stuff up on there. They've got the um, the one forty uh, pulse uh, timing pulse generator. Um, and they have a cool section where they also just um kind of talk about the history of things and they go into um which I didn't really think about but it makes sense when you look at them how the 100 series was kind of based off of a grid or the panel was and they all kind of followed the same each module followed the same grid and it's obviously much different once they once he kind of transitioned over to the 200 series cuz all those modules look quite a bit different from one another and uh supposedly i guess that was um his don's intention uh was to make it um easier for somebody who is blind to use because all the modules mm-hmm. would feel different and looking at it now i you know if you i'm looking at like the 259 the 281 the 292 just those three in place and it's like yeah you've got different sized knobs the um 292 has the kind of cascading knobs down and so it does does all make sense it's pretty pretty neat yeah and on on those modules you the leds are useful feedback but they're not required to use the module yeah yeah you you can listen to it and know what where you are in the wavetables or what mode you're in on the 281e That's, that's really interesting yeah uh, so yeah, check out uh, memsproject.info. They're they're constantly putting some cool stuff up there. So, do you think Buchla will reissue that Kodak 100 series module? <laughs> that, would, that would be really cool. Maybe like Don Draper. Yeah, just like the... recreate the uh, end of the first season. Yeah, there. but using a Buchla to <laughs> to move that. <laughs> Merry Christmas, everybody! <laughs> and I haven't even had any bourbon yet. So what, or what about eggnog? I I had some eggnog yesterday. Mm-hmm. You know, Dairy Gold, which is a local dairy, you know, boy, their eggnog is just the best. I, like, I you know, it's like I don't feel like I've revisited eggnog in 10 or 12 years. Hmm. It's time for you to come home, so, Kyle. Yeah, might have to. <laughs> well, we have a really great show today. We... You know, when we, before I reveal what the featured module is, I'll just say very briefly, I wondered how the hell are we going to do this featured module? But we pulled it off, man. And it is the 223E multidimensional kinesthetic input port with the corresponding module 223E tactile input port. So the modules that, the module in the Kabukla is the tactile input port and the multidimensional kinesthetic input port is that bird controller thing. So when you're listening to this app, Highly recommend bringing up a photograph of the 223 module and the controller. Yeah, very helpful. Or um, become a Patreon subscriber and you can see the video of us using that a bit. And um, and then that'll be up on our YouTube page in a, a couple months as well. Yeah. Um, and after we dig into that, we uh, it was very cool. We got to talk with um, uh, Joel Devell from... Uh, Currently, Bukla USA, but he's was a uh, an associate of Bukla and Associates um, since the early '90s. We worked with Don for a long time, so it was really cool to chat with him about, yeah, spending all that time with Don and kind of through the the eras of all the uh, MIDI uh, controllers that they were they were making in the in the '90s and 
getting into the uh, the E-series. And then we bring Peter Nyber from Sensil into the conversation to talk about collaborating with Joel on the Sensil Morph Thunderpad. And Peter has quite a bit of credentials in the MIDI controller world. Yeah, so uh, I guess without further ado, let's get into this. Input port and the multi-dimensional kinesthetic input port. Yeah, they're two different names. Yeesh. You know the the reason that this has the the um, multi-dimensional kinesthetic input port has a different name than the tactile input port is because of the two twenty two E, which had the rings. So yes. A different uh, different mode for interaction. Now with that out of the way, let's start playing with the patch. Yeah, so um, what's a little bit different about how we've, uh, I guess how we're approaching this uh, featured module section um, is we've kind of pre-patched everything because what I'm finding out about this, because um, this is Robert's um, uh, 223E, um, it's what I say earlier, it's the opposite of... Um, uh, uh, what did you say? I was, I was so flabbergasted. By... Um, uh, it's the opposite of immediate. I think yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it definitely, um, it, it requires a lot of programming. A lot of, you know, the, the when we were working on this, Kyle, this patch took us almost three hours to make, which is a new record <laughs> for the show. And it's because there is such a separation between the timbres that you want the sound the rhythm mm -hmm. you know kyle would tell me what he it's like i want a loping sequence and i can program you know my 251 and all that stuff to do that but to make it work in the 223 requires a lot of activity that isn't making sound or music you know what i mean it's yeah it's yeah building a front end of sorts for the way we're going to stop start and modulate um, the different timbres and activities and the rest of the of the patch yeah i mean it's but it's pretty amazing about yeah so there's so much kind of work that you do on the front end but then once you've got it set up you have just an amazing amount of of control over everything which i'm you know coming from um using the 218e um which is very immediate which we'll, it, it we'll go into and like what you were saying so you got this um with as an easel k so right yeah <laughs> and i I've told this story a few times that I got the, my easel with the 223E in it. So it was the easel K and I got it out of the box. I was really excited. I turned it on and I tapped a key and nothing happened. <laughs> so I knew that, you know, I knew the oscillator was making noise because I turned the VCA up and 
then I patched a cable from control voltages, just one of the radios, because it has these four radio things. I patched a cable to pitch and I pressed a key and nothing happened. And it was only after watching Todd Barton's amazing Buchla series um, that he has for sale on the cask video and macro video where he went over the 223E, that was when it really unlocked. Mm -hmm. And that was my embarrassing thing when I saw him live because I was like, oh my God, Todd, you've changed my life by showing me how to use the 223E. I can use my easel now. But the looking at the patch, there are, I mean, we have a lot of patch cables going into this thing. Yeah, um, I mean, there's so, we should have counted, maybe we, we should, about how many outputs this thing has. I yeah. mean, it's got a, it's got a win for most outputs on a single panel module, right? Yeah, it, it may be tied with the 225E MIDI. Yeah. You can see it over there. Oh, yeah. That's got quite a, I don't, I don't, I yeah, don't know. Maybe. The way this thing's organized for people, for folks who don't know what this is. So when we talk about the 223E, and I think I'm going to post a picture of this on the website to go along with this episode. Beautiful website. Yeah, yeah that's worth yeah. it. Um, this is two different modules, sort of. One is a the normal Buchla size module that goes in your system, and it has inputs and outputs. Actually, it only has outputs and a couple of a couple of inputs. And then the controller is the bird thing, the Thunderbird. I think Joel called it, mm -hmm. and it's based on the design of the Buchla Thunder MIDI controller from some years back. And it looks like kind of like a Native American bird, mm -hmm. Thunderbird, and that connects into the module with the ribbon cable. So you go into the module and it has these arpeggiator section and a set of pulses and then these four things called radios. And I, Todd talked about why they're called radios and he was kind of guessing. Um, I, I can't really, I've thought a lot about this. Why are they called radios? Are they different stations? I don't know, but they're called radios on the module. Mm -hmm. And each one has pulse out, location, pressure, impact out, control voltage out, and then a second control voltage out or location so location is new to me from the coming from the 218 e um which you know there's the actual cv out the pressure out and a pulse out but location is like where you actually touch the uh for the different keys that are on the yeah um the uh what do you call it, the thunderbird <laughs> section um depending on where in the the key that you touch because each key is about i don't know two and a half inches most well, of the most, most of the feathers yeah are yeah about that and so um so depending on where you tap on that that knows the location or it senses that right and voltages can change because of that in, yeah instead of or it can do as well pressure which where it's um the amount of um the skin contact right on the key yeah kind of as you smush down on it more of your finger comes yeah. in contact and it has a third mode impact which is kind of like velocity on the keyboard mm -hmm. where it will send a voltage from zero to ten based on how hard you strike the key with the touch plate um i have had mixed results with that it mm -hmm. may be that it's sent so sensitive that the voltage jumps so high but there depending on where you're sending that voltage impact can you know, open and close something really fast, or you can send it into a velocity and put on the 292. So pressure, location, and impact, um, yeah, pressure, location, and impact are the three ways that you can primarily interact with this. And it also has, you know, sustained pulses when you hold it down. 
It has a, a way to do polyphony where you can route from the different radios to different oscillators mm-hmm. and hold down multiple keys mm-hmm. to send those out. You can program the keys per radio so that some keys are on for both radio or more than one radio and some keys are only on one radio and so they're sending voltages all over your system and this thing is all about outrageous modulation it's mm-hmm. about sending control voltages everywhere you want it to go in, any any input in a custom way yeah and customized to your needs yes where compared to the 218 um it's chromatic yep. so and it looks like a keyboard yeah which is a great thing about the 218 with this, you know, all of the voltages for all of the touch plates are set to zero. And you have to program the voltages in that you want. So if you're doing pitch, you need to know, like if you were doing a, um, an equal temperament or you're doing like a tonal, you know, t- mm-hmm. Western 12 scale, the 12 tones, you need to know what the voltages are for each of the tones. So you tune your oscillator to C and you need, you know, zero and then I think, 24 i mean i can't remember from but you have to like i use a tuner but each each key each touch plate you have to tune individual or uh, program individually for the note that you want it to be now that is really cool too because you can program any scale you want mm-hmm. you could do gamelan you could do if you're you know going to perform a raga you can do a raga scale you can program whatever you want which is really neat um, because it's per touch plate and that i think is a, a paradigm shift coming from a keyboard where you're expecting the notes to always be relative to each other chromatically, like in the mm-hmm. 218. Mm-hmm. That's also the challenge with this, though, because you turn it on and it doesn't make any sound. You have to really know what you're watching. Yeah, it it also makes me think of it of well the the earlier um, touch plate keyboards from the 100 series and the early 200 series, um, you know, weren't set up chromatically until the 218 and the 219 and 221, um, where you had uh, one or maybe two uh, CV outputs for for each key. Um, so with this, and they were usually pretty large, like they were either yeah. four panels to um, to up to six panels uh, wide. Um, but so this kind of condenses it or it breaks it up. So in a, in a way, it is four panels wide because you've got the um, the actual uh, input port and then the touch. Yeah, because yeah, the touch plate is, the Thunderbird is three panels wide. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It would fit, I have a, a Keen Smart Cab, which is four spaces wide. We could have put this, yeah. the panel yeah. thing, in, uh, the Thunderbird inside. Which it. is, yeah, why it fits with their, or the Easel K will fit yeah. underneath the uh, the 208. But You see it in a lot of big systems that way, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, but instead of having, I guess, an individual um, uh, knobs for, for every key to to tune it however you'd like to we have an encoder switch on this yeah or knob yeah <laughs> which is the blessing and the curse of this because you you page through the different settings there's mm-hmm. one little window this what do you think that looks like a like a piece of trident gum it's about, <laughs> yeah that's it, it's about that size <laughs> and it's low resolution it's an lcd and um you know Contrast isn't the greatest. It just is what it is. But you page through. It looks the, like early uh, 2000s. It, uh, it does, yeah. It looks like, yeah, like an early, like a, a, the radio in my 98 Grand Prix. Um, <laughs> you page through the different settings. So arpeggiator, 
then pulse outputs, then each radio, and then the CV outs, and, and so on. And then you turn the encoder to change the value item by item. So you increase the CV1, you turn the encoder, you press cursor to CV2, you turn the encoder, you press cursor to radio, and you turn the encoder, and so on and so forth. Like, I'm making it sound as tedious as it is. It's pretty tedious, I'll say. It's. Uh, would you say it's the most menu divey out of? Very close to the the two ninety one e can be menu divey. Oh yeah. You know when you're programming stages, um, it, that actually is. I would say they're pretty similar that way. I'm. I'm that's the filter. Yeah, that's the thing. It's a triple morphing filter. I'm faster on the two twenty three e because I've used it so much. Mm-hmm. The two ninety one e because you're you're setting the menu options per filter that can be that can be pretty tedious. Mm-hmm. And then the um, the two twenty five e has a little window and it's it's pretty straightforward. I, that one's a set it or forget it kind of thing. Mm-hmm. This is this takes the two twenty three e takes so much because the more outputs you're using, the more programming you have to do. Yeah, yeah. And then you have to be really thoughtful about when a key is active in two radios and where you're sending those. But that's how you can do stuff like chords and, um, you know, really cool things with intervals. I like to use it to simulate. I was working on a, um, I, need to, I need to share this with everybody. I'm doing, working on a Buchla, um arrangement of Ligeti's Musica Ricercata Number no. 2, which you can hear in um, Eyes Wide Shut. Mm-hmm. It's a really famous piece. And, to, and that piece is interesting because on an 88-key piano, you play F and F sharp. At the, with your left hand all the way at the bottom, and then you play the F and F sharp through your right hand all the way at the top. Okay. So the what I did with the 223E is I have a key sending control volt the pitch to my low oscillator, see the left side of the keyboard, mm-hmm. and the high oscillator to the right side of the keyboard. In that case, it's the um, the two sections of the 258E. So then I'm able to play with one finger both both mm-hmm. sides of that keyboard the mm-hmm. way you would need to with four fingers if you were playing on a piano. And that's, that's one of the really cool, powerful things about this because I could conceivably send that control voltage to every single input mm-hmm. in my entire system. And, you know, it, it's just going to go everywhere and do all kinds of crazy stuff that way. But doing it with pitch is probably the most natural thing that folks start with. It's definitely where you yeah. started today. You're like, okay, let's get a pitch. <laughs> let's get that out of the way. <laughs> get out the, and then the like, long patch cable and make a pitch. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess I can see it why or it's got one in internal preset right yeah so if we were to shut this off and not have saved it through the um the 206 um it yeah, would still you, be there you yes if you, you there's something you have to do to save the preset locally it's like you hold down the remote enable but then that makes is a good point because a preset manager is damn near essential for yeah. this if you don't have a preset manager and you have like an ESL K, a really cool hack is to use the four different radios for four different presets, sort of. Oh, okay. So if you have this with an ESL, radio one is, think of it as preset one, radio two is preset two, because you're probably not going to send pitch from all four radios to your pitch input, for example. Mm-hmm. That's a cool um, tip that I got from Todd Barton when this was still plugged into my ESL. To just swap those yep just the move the cables and yep. yeah go to the next well, you know and it, it works it works great mm-hmm. um the other thing we didn't mention too kyle is it has these two r and s hexagons and yeah. those are joysticks they're xy 
joysticks. Yeah, which joysticks have been on um, some of the older uh, touch plate keyboards, like the 219 had two, um, two square XY joysticks, and the 221 had one single joystick on there. Um, I think a lot of it was um, meant to be used. I mean, you know, he can use it for whatever, but I think a lot yeah. of people maybe use it for um, spatializing the quad. That's um, um, Morton Sabotnik did that in Silver Apples of the Moon. I don't know, what, you know, which joystick or anything, but he did a swirling mm. thing through quad. And that's a really, really common use case of the R and S things here with the 227. Yeah. So which we need someday when we do a quad performance, you and me together, we'll patch R to two sections of the 227E front, maybe, mm-hmm. and then S to the two back sections, and then we'll, and yeah. left and right, so we'll make them go all over the, the crazy places. That's going to be fun. Yeah. All right. Are you so, ready to hear this? I mean, yeah, this, this do doesn't it. make we'll any sound. For, yeah. Right. <laughs> Here, make a sound. Okay, you heard the 223. <laughs> yeah, let's let's walk through this patch. Um, you go first. Uh, so we kind of broke it up into three different sections. Um, the first one is a uh, a sequence, just a short sequence on the 251E. Um, so what was cool was um, we have one touchpad uh, that we have touchpad Q that will start the sequence. But it also, um, depending on the location, so where I tap at the bottom of the um, of the pad, it's really quiet. But as I move my finger up, it gets louder. So it not only uh, it sends a pulse to start this sequence, which you're hearing now. If I kind of move my finger lower on the uh, on the touchpad, obviously you got quieter yeah we we have location patched to the cv input on the 292e dynamics manager that's how we're doing that bit of magic and so yeah so with my finger just going up and, up and down on this key just I'm, it's as if i were turning the knob on the uh, 292 low pass gate um then we've got on a the key just adjacent to it's the T key. Um, if I press that, it stops the sequence, and it's it stops on that same note. Um, and then that also has the same location uh, setting as well. So I can stop on a note and have that hang there, and then play with how much of it is going through the the 292. You want to see something really cool? Yeah. Now, if we press why, why else am I here? <laughs> we press both of them at the same time, it will advance one step in the two fifty one e. Okay, I'm doing this wrong. Maybe my fingers are too sweaty. There it goes. Oh, there you go. Oh, you heard it. <laughs> it's kind of hard to do, but when you send a start and a stop pulse to the two fifty one e, I guess well, you gotta be very yeah specific. Yeah, we gotta be at exactly the same time. Um, to so yeah, but it does reset every time. Then, um, like if we stop it on the second note, um, it'll stay there. But if we go press the uh, um, the start key, it'll reset. 
So we've got that going. That's kind of the oh, so that's coming from the 268E oscillator uh, by Keen Association. Oh, yeah. So another thing that we have um, set up to that, maybe you can explain this portion of it. Um, we've got the M key going oh, yeah. to the. So the the 268E graphic waveform generator from Keen Association has four oscillators, and you. Just really quickly, the way this thing works is you send control voltage and it shapes the waveform. Mm -hmm. So it's like a little virtual tape logger, and the CV is written to that tape. I'm doing air quotes, and rendered as a waveform. So when we we're sending the M key, its location CV out to the wave shape input of the 260E for both oscillators, and because we're using two of the four. So when we, I'll activate that sequence, just one note. So as I move my finger for location, it's sending that CV to the input on the oscillators. And it only moves the tape when I touch it. So if I stop, that's the waveform we get. Mm -hmm. So if you kind of tap it rapidly, it's, yeah, because it moves really slowly. I'm going to turn it up really fast for a second. So a lot of, so we've got a lot of timbre change on that, that M section. So we're going to start the, restart the sequence. down the volume so i mean that's pretty neat to i mean just with two or three keys we can start a sequence stop it adjust the volume and adjust the timbre you know with i mean you could maybe do that with <laughs> with one hand all at one time if you um, depending on which yeah, yeah you could yeah, you do use your thumb yeah if we had you know we, we randomly chose which keys we were going to yeah if you imagine the bird uh, if you're listening to this and you're looking at the picture of the Thunderbird on Google, we're using the tail feathers to start and stop the sequence. And then we're using M, which is just a little bit farther away. But conceivably, I'm holding my hand over it. You could do two adjacent keys mm -hmm. and have, you know, changing the, the location while of, of both fingers. I'm, I'm moving my fingers over it. Kyle can see what I mean. Imagine like a little man. You make a little man that's <laughs> running along, you know? You know, when you pester your uh, your animals and do that in front of their face and trying to get them to uh, attack your, your hands. That, that's my movement for, <laughs> for my uh, walking fingers. My, my dog just, he's, I try to reach the ball out of his mouth and he turns his head sharply but keeps his eyes focused on me like, what are you doing? No take, only throw. So the the next piece, which I think I'm gonna let you talk about it, Kyle, because when you came over today, you were like arpeggiator, arpeggiator, arpeggiator. Let's make an arpeggiator. <laughs> well, it <laughs> is, you know, it's a what I don't know what you say a quarter of this module, a fifth of this module. Yeah. Um, and I hadn't really explored it, and um, I've heard some people talk about it and talk about how it's 
powerful where coming from 218e is a lot more uh not a ton of options on it um it's helpful but so yeah so i wanted to kind of see what this one was about so um so yeah we're using another um oscillator from the 268e and so i think you have to um so what i learned is you can kind of preset the amount of um steps in here and we've got um we've got them designated or is that the only way you can put yeah, them you can only do them from the a b c d e f g or e h i j k that this top row of the thunderbird yeah so it's like where the thunderbird it kind of while it's left to right is, is also kind of works top down so at the top of the the wings or the feathers yeah he's, um, he's got his, his wings all spread out um this is really fun talking about <laughs> this way. uh yeah, the triangle is his head yeah so yeah is that e? so yeah, yeah um they're smaller uh pads on there and so those only um correlate to the arpeggiator right right so um so yeah we got some specific pitches set up on that um I'm gonna sit here and see if he can remember. Oh, I can't. You got it. <laughs> so what we have to do to get the arpeggiator going is, is if you press run, then you hold down the. Two, let's say I'm gonna do A and C. Let's turn that up a bit. So it'll play them as long as I'm holding the keys down. But if we want to play the whole arpeggio, then we tap this button called Add Note, and we go. Tapping all along the yep. the upper sections of of each um, six wing. of them, right? A B C yeah. D, yeah, H I. So there's our there's our arpeggio, arpeggio, and we didn't I didn't show Kyle all this, but you can go into the menu. I'm I'm tapping through here and change it from rising to falling. These modes show off better if you have like a full eight setting or eight note arpeggio, but we'll just leave it on rising for the rest of this. Okay. So, um, so kind of the uh, signal flow from this, the arpeggio is going into the 268E. That's um, going into uh, 292. There's an envelope um, that's getting triggered from the arpeggiator, um, and then that's going into the to the mixer, the 206 mixer. So this has the same, um, as Robert's kind of shifting on that that M key, um, it's doing that same thing that we just showed you with the, um, the slower uh, uh, sequence, how it's kind of shifting the timbre. But we've set up a bunch of um, settings on the S pad. And that's one of the ones that's at the um, kind of like the, the, the hex, XY. Hexagon XY joystick, yeah. So what we've done here is we've first, um, I guess for the, uh, let's see, X is up and down. So for, for the up and down sections of it, we y have. Y is up and down. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's okay. Uh, there are only arrows here, you know. Oh, yeah, I guess there's I a left look there's over. A points yeah. to the right and one points to up. So I've got that set to go uh, to left and right. So that's set to panning. And 
so I'm just moving my finger up and down, shifting between left and right. Uh, so on the X axis, we have the rate of this of the uh, arpeggiator. So all the way to the left, it's its slowest. 42 BPM. And then if I shift it over to far right. Which I think that's 480 BPM, so giving it a full 10 volts. So if I, now I'm kind of just rocking my finger up and down along the edge of this um, hexagon pad. And, was, and you can hear the, uh, if you're listening on headphones or stereo speakers, you can hear it kind of shifting back and forth. Yeah, kind of has a Pink Floyd on the run feel to it. And what is cool, like I guess, it's it's local. This is all kind of location. I'm not like it's not the amount of pressure that right. I'm putting yeah, on everything. Location. So I can just tap, and it has a memory of like where I last tapped, and it'll then. So I just kind of tap the bottom left hand corner of it, and so we can hear it in the right ear, um, and it's a slower pace. And then if I do the top uh, right section of it, we can kind of hear it more to the left. I think I have my headphones on backwards. <laughs> <laughs> or me. Uh, we'll see. We'll fix it in post. <laughs> um, so yeah, we've got, so if I'm shifting that around, we also have the M section that is shifting. It's controlling, it's going into... Oh, I'm sorry, that's N. Yeah. Um, so we're kind of shifting the tape speed or whatever on the, uh, on the oscillator. So we have some shift and timbre there. Oh, and then also what we have is location set on key L for um, the inputs, the CB inputs on the 281 envelope. Yeah, the attack and decay. So at the bottom of the, uh, the L note is like or completely closed, so it's um, we get a very snappy, almost percussive. Yeah. So right now we're kind of rocking the it's kind of a tom sound, isn't it? A little bit. Yeah, not quite bongo. No, we didn't. Say, you said it. I didn't say it. Tom. Um, <laughs> hey, Tom. Uh, Doesn't this sound a little bit like a tom? Yeah. Yeah. And then you know, especially. Oh, there's that on the run thing again. So I love. Yeah. I love the uh, stereo feel of it. It's it's clear how much you love that key over there because it's turned brown for you. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should wash my hands. Like the left one, R is nice and white. <laughs> <laughs> but I get some Clorox wipes on this thing after I'm gone. I'm gonna get a magic eraser. Yeah. I'm gonna get a brand new one. No, um, so then, so yeah, we've got that going, and then you know if we shift up the uh, key, the L key, that opens up the uh, the envelope. So where it's kind of wide open, we don't hear any yeah. envelope anymore. It's so neat how familiar that. If you think of Suzanne Chiani's mm -hmm. Book Club Concert 75. Those two. So yeah, this is very fun. Yeah, it is. So once again, with two hands, you've got all this 
spatial definition, timbre changes, tempo changes. So I've tapped my finger really fast on the, the end key, which modulates the wave shape on the 2680. And that's why I have that really, really, a lot of harmonics in there. That's so, real. Yeah. I'll slow it down a bit. Okay, so. Yeah. Boy, man, this is so much fun. Yeah. So, all right, so we've done that to that. So let's stop the arpeggiator on there because we've got one more section that we we set up, um, which we... <laughs> I couldn't see it because all the patch cables. <laughs> um, so now we've got the... Uh, uh, 259 E 258 or sorry 258 actually uh, let's be clear this is the dual programmable oscillator thank you from studio.h um <laughs> 258 is what we call it so we've got that um we've got both uh, sides of the oscillator um being affected by the pitch of um keys l w or sorry v x v w x and y that's that's the order in the alphabet. Yes. Well we had X and Y on the on the joystick. Yeah. And then we have X and Y, you know. It's yeah. too it's too much. It's Saturday. <laughs> so we're on vacation. We've <laughs> been working on this for four hours. It's at dark this point. outside. <laughs> um so so yeah, we've got basically for this one we've got pitches, the preset pitches for this. Yeah, we programmed them into in C major. And um they're going into two different envelopes. And uh, so this is effectively kind of just set up the most basic in a keyboard yeah, sense. Like, yeah, it's a, so we're sending the same note to both oscillators. Mm -hmm. They're tuned together, but oscillator A modulates the amplitude of oscillator B. So they're going to have some, the pitches come in and out. And we have the keys, the touch keys at um, C, E, G, and B. So we get that nice augmented B. You can almost hear that old Chicago song, Color My World, in there. Not familiar. <laughs> okay, boomer. <laughs> I'm not a boomer, I just, you know, I like music. What can I say? There's nothing wrong with being a boomer anyway. Never spent much time in Chicago. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's windy. <laughs> So, um, so yeah, if I'm tapping the kind of the bottom of the four keys, it's the most subdued in a way yeah. that um, the waveforms are still set to their, I mean, their, there's a little bit of AM modulation that you can kind of hear through there. Um, as I rock it up, the uh, waveforms change to square and saw. saw. Yeah. Yeah. So it gets much more. I mean, harmonics just kind of really come through. Do you, do you want to go off script for a minute? Sure. Let me switch this modulation from amp to FM. Okay. Let's see what happens. Pretty cool. And that's a location. Do we have location or pressure on this? We thing? have. Well, you know what? I'm going to look. Give me half an hour to page the What radio is that? Eight? 
we have loca location. Location. Yeah, so a lot of location on this one, which is fun. Yeah, I'm gonna let's do amplitude and FM. Oh yeah, you hear that? That kind of a really fast tremolo. That's just wave. Which is funny because you're also modulating wave with the location. And then this is all, all three of them. Okay, I'm going to go back to just camp so we can continue on with our demo here. I kind of like the FM a little bit better. Okay. Let's do it. So I'm going to break the fourth wall and say the reason we've been here for four hours is because Kyle has sat there and done that for two of them. Yeah. <laughs> I gotta get one of these things. You should. You should get all of this. Yeah. You should buy it all Someday. from me. Someday. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I can retire. So. <laughs> but then I'll never get to retire. I'll just buy it back <laughs> from you. <laughs> um, all right. So we can actually kind of get all these things going we'll all try it. So what do we start with the arpeggio um yeah let me okay. turn on that okay now um i think that when you press add note the arpeggio arpeggiator plays the notes in the order that you've activated them but that might be confirmation bias it might sound mm -hmm. different to me but so let's let's find out okay okay so i'm gonna tap so here is No, no. It just once the arpeggio takes its its form, it's completed going through all the steps. You can hear it's the same. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, I can sleep tonight. <laughs> Learn something new today. Yeah. Let's get a better waveform. Hold on. Oops. And then we can start the. That sounds a little bit like Alessandro Portini, doesn't it? That, that, that sequence with the there, like that. So yeah, modulating the... Got some harmonics and resonance in there. two-person uh, two instrument. Well, you could do it all with just... If you weren't holding a mic, you could do all of this. Sounds so good. Uh, 
super fun. Yeah. I lost in that for a second. I love how the how because we, you're modulating the tempo of the arpeggio, the mm -hmm. arpeggiator. Let me hit stop on that. It goes from being a, a melody to percussion. Mm -hmm. You know, as I, I was just modulating the wave shape, you know, to add a lot of character to or a lot of harmonics to the sound. There's no filter or anything. The resonance comes from me making the um, the amplitude really fast with my finger. But Kyle's doing some cool stuff, changing the tempo and then taking the attack and decay down to just the nice ping, the, the LPG. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Could record a, a 25 minute ambient thing and yeah. call it, I don't know, something in Italian. Throw a crap load of uh, reverb on there. And... We have to give it an, Itali an Italian name. Though. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ivanti. <laughs> I want a two, two, three now. <laughs> Why don't we talk with one of the people that is responsible for this? Sounds good to me. Let's do it. here with Joel Devell. Joel, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, you're quite welcome. Happy to be here. Great. So um, you've been an associate for for <laughs> quite a while. I'm sure your your uh, uh, role has changed a few times over the past um, uh, couple decades that you've been working um, with, uh, with Don and now with uh, Buka USA. Can you tell us... Um, how you first were introduced to, to Bukla and sure. if, that, if that was the man or the, the machine, whichever came first? Well, it was, uh, it was definitely the machine first. Um, I was out at uh, Northern Illinois University and I was working on, well, I, as a, I was sort of tr training in classical percussion at the time and there were about 25 percussion majors and, uh, I thought I needed a different edge to what I do. So I got and something more contemporary. So I really started pursuing the electronic music classes. And um, we had, of course, we had in, we had a few studios. We had one that was the analog studio and which one which is the larger, we called the digital studio. Mm -hmm. uh, and then a the third became the computer music studio, which was just an office. Um, mm -hmm. But in the analog studio, we had an Electrocomp, a Putney, 
a um, Arbodice, a uh, electric comp I did a lot with, and then the um, a few other things in there. Mm-hmm. Um, we had some Moog uh, gear in there as well. And then uh, that was sort of the, and then we had, of course, tape uh, reels of, you know, we Revox tape machines. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were doing uh, sort of a combination of um, using the analog gear and uh, and working on splicing tape and everything you did involving that. And that was a half inch, you know, two track tape. Uh-huh. So that's what that class was about. And I got a lot out of it. I I really um, found sort of a voice there that spoke to me. Um, and it wasn't just the tape loops. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was, uh, so I used that and I continued on into the, what became the digital studio. We called the digital studio, but really had um, a 200 system in it. And one that uh, Don had actually personally been involved in setting up because it had a, um, a number of, um, it wasn't exactly a, f- a 500, but it was computer, it was controlled by the PDP-11 computer. Mm. Not directly, it, it had a rack of gear that was 8-bit and 10-bit uh, that you could control. And that typically was set up uh, to work in tandem with the 200 series. So we were doing digital control of, of Don's equipment uh, primarily in that room, as well as um, an eight-track system that was, you know, I don't know, half-inch tape or maybe even one-inch. It was, <laughs> and then, uh, but so I was getting into computer music uh, uh, through that, and controlling Don's equipment and uh, more tape things, and of course, and that room also had a DX7 and an old uh, Mac, uh, the first Macs. Um, maybe the first or the second model of a Mac to mm-hmm. edit what, what the DX7 did. So the combination of working on that and then eventually working into the third studio where we worked on a language called HMSL, uh, which is based on fourth, uh, and that we could send tons of SysX to um, and create interesting sort of sequencers that were unusual. Uh, this was sort of before... You know, we're talking in the uh, late 80s. So with all of this and being introduced to Don's equipment, um, it gave me a good background, especially because I knew uh, from working with them that Don could be kind of cantankerous when it came to repairing equipment. So when I came out to the Bay Area, I came out to Mills. Mm -hmm. And um, I was specifically, my task at Mills was continuing in the computer language that I was using at Northern, which was HMSL. And which was one that Don actually had a reason to employ me um, <laughs> to finish off this exhibit at the Exploratorium, which was working on using lightning. So it, it mm. all kind of came together. That's sort of the short story, but it, it actually is a one through line, a, almost a straight line to that meeting Don and working with him. Um through through knowing a little bit of um, uh, computer language that he needed <laughs> someone yeah. to, to to use because it had been started by someone who was at Mills uh, this okay. project that was the and, um, the hierarchical music specification language right in the, around the mid eighties yes yeah. exactly exactly 
an object-oriented uh, fourth language. Um, and so I, you know, hadn't handled all the analog stuff, but trying to pursue electronics in its interactive, most interactive ways. I saw Don, of course, use Thunder at the time as well. I think I actually met Don before I started working with him, uh, before it was recommended to work with him. And that was uh, when he was playing, he introduced Thunder to uh, Ed Mills in 1990, which is when I was there. Mm. So I don't know how many other people he had shown Thunder to, but uh, he brought it over, uh, showed it to a group of us. And we all thought that was pretty thrilling uh, to um, see him work with it and talk about it. Uh, and then shortly thereafter, uh, he created, he was creating, um, lightning at the time, of course. And then when I, I didn't start working with him until I was done at Mills. Uh, and that's when, um, lightning was already done. And then we were working on this other exhibit. So I started working with him when we were doing, uh, and well, I may be jumping ahead, but, um, the using as a pro working as a programmer for Don had its, um, uh, what shall I say? <laughs> Choosing words carefully. Yeah. Well, uh, it wasn't easy because he was very much, uh, you, you know, it's hard to show someone what you're doing when you're working with, uh, code mm -hmm. and how much progress you're making or not making and, and, uh, the time you're putting in. And I quickly realized he was much less, um, Working with programmers was always a little bit contentious uh, with him because it, it didn't do what he thought it should do or it didn't work. You know, we weren't working fast enough. Whereas when I was working with hardware with him, um, mm -hmm. we were working at the shop. He saw what I was doing, it was working directly with him, and it turned out to be a much more calm relationship. Mm -hmm. So um, for various reasons, we I finished up that project, but uh, I was pretty quickly back on hardware. Um, and actually living at the space, um, living in, in sort of the third floor of his house briefly. Um, and, uh, in fact, we were working on the OBMX. So, uh, okay. I was wondering, cause I think, it, yeah, it was like around, cause that came out in 94, right? Um, that sounds about right. 94, 95. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he was, you know, that was a contract gig, but uh, immediately that was a good way for me to be gainfully employed by someone who, so Don didn't have to pay me directly for a while. We got paid by Gibson Yeah. Um, uh, to do that. Um, so at that point, kind of all the modular stuff was just uh, dormant, right? There, he was... In terms of, uh, yeah, development, it was completely dormant. I mean, we're, you know, the early 90s, I was... Uh, I think I grabbed a panel from one of these surplus uh, shops here to bend into something that I was just going to use as a piece of sheet metal mm -hmm. uh, because they had a bunch of extra panels that Don had thrown out. Um, that's how, you know, the state of modular synthesis was at the time. I mean, there were just, it was like garbage floating around all these old components. And we were trying to get rid of this. A lot of things that we had at the shop, Don sold a lot of old switches and components. Um, some people were smart and collected some of that stuff. Um, Don just didn't feel he had space for a lot of it. So, you know, a lot of it got sold pretty cheaply. Um, but you know, we were onto other things and in, in a lot of ways it Don's thinking about 
synthesis had changed, he felt like there were enough sound sources by that time, but there was a severe lack of uh, interesting control. Mm-hmm. And I think Don's, even his, <clears throat> if you think about it, the 100 series and the 200 series, it was all really about how do we control these sounds. The 100 was control, was um, created really to partly control tape decks mm-hmm. and, of course, be able to control the sound with envelopes and and whatnot. But I think Don, in a lot of ways, always thought of his synthesis as controllers you know there was a lot of knobs and a lot of abilities to change the behavior of the inputs uh he was thinking less about that as much he was thinking more about sort of the control of sound than he was how do i imitate a sound or the actual sound yeah yeah um how do i control it so that the timbre is something that you know is is um is like a musical instrument um you know, I think Mort talks about this a lot. You know, you can make a sound, you can make a, but how do you make a, out of, you know, how do we make a synth do that? Mm-hmm. How do you make it, make a gesture? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so he wanted to get into gestural controllers like um, thunder and lightning and whatnot. And so that kind of took up, I guess, the rest of, or other than the, the OBMX, um, the Lightning. Lightning had a few different versions of it too, correct? Yes. So there have been, there were th- officially three versions. Um, there were really four, but we don't count one. I count the one as one and a half. Um, so there was, when I met Don, he had already created Lightning One. And Lightning One, um, the disadvantage is this, the, Presets seemed pretty volatile because the, for one thing, you couldn't save it with a memory card and there were fewer of them and there wasn't a sound card that you could use to sort of show people examples of how it worked. Um, and the optics were also in the un- in the box itself. So when you wanted to mount the optics, you had to put the entire unit on top of a mic stand. So you have this little thing almost, you know, size of, half a bread box on top of a mic stand in order to play it. So um, Lightning 2 was created. Actually, the first version of Lightning 2 improved the optics and included a memory card, um, but it also was still in the same kind of housing. Um, There were only four of those made, and that's when I was working with Don. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, I remember dropping them all down the stairs once. Um, (laughs) I think it was the first week I worked with Don. I... I've dropped four lightnings and they all survived just fine. So, oh. um, but uh, we created one that had separate optics uh, so you could mount that a little bit more uh, discreetly on a mic stand and you could edit near, near you and you had a sound card and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And that was Lightning 2. And Lightning 3, uh, it added a three-dimensional, like it has a Z-axis, but the Z-axis is pretty crude because it's just not nearly as fine uh, a gradient mm-hmm. as the X and Y, which is very optically precise. Z-axis is really about how much energy is moving forward and backwards towards the optics. So I find Lightning um, Lightning 3 is a subtle improvement on Lightning 2, but it's, they're almost the same. There's a, also Lightning 3 is slightly faster. Okay. 
And weren't there a couple other, I know I've like maybe seen a couple pictures, but were, were there a couple like a, uh, some sort of drum pad? Yeah, there's, um, well, of course, uh, there's Thunder, which didn't really work that effectively. Uh, I was disappointed. One of the first things that disappointed me was when I actually first got my hands on a Thunder realizing how its uh, latency really didn't make it appropriate for percussion controller. Mm -hmm. It was, uh, it's great to sort of push up and down with your fingers, but I could, you could send the sensitivity fairly lightly, fairly sensitive. So it's a little bit more effective that way, but um, it was really a little too um, behind in order to do that. But mm -hmm. we did make a version of what we called a Thunder 2 uh, that was a drum head, um, and it, um, we actually got it, uh, we had Remo make the heads. Uh, it's sort of a similar pattern to Thunder um, in the graphics on the top, and it had a mirrored surface underneath, mm -hmm. which you would bounce light off of to determine where you are. And that actually worked fairly quickly. It felt like a drum mm -hmm. when you played it. Um, it's... What happened after we made that first prototype is kind of a sad story <laughs> because uh, it actually worked fairly decently. I think we should have made two fully complete working prototypes, of course, instead of just the one, mm -hmm. because we ended up cannibalizing that one to make the one. So Don, Don brought this. I remember shopping this around with Don to various larger companies like, um, I don't know if Yamaha, maybe even Yamaha, but. Eventually, um, uh, and Sonic, which quickly became swallowed up later, yeah, uh, took it on, and then it was going to be an it was going to be an Insonic product. Um, we put we had a head with I think their name on it, and then we briefly thought that maybe we'd make it, but we'd make it under the cat name, so we had a head that said Thundercat. Um, <laughs> okay, I, I, I love uh, that. I, w <laughs> I want a Thundercat. <laughs> I still have a, uh, a um, yeah, I still have something that says Thundercat. It's the, it's the hardware on the bottom, the, the faceplate. But anyway, we had that and uh, we, and they, they liked the idea enough that they wanted to make it, but they realized that hand bending these optics to bend them just so that right, so that they um, read the head was going to be too much work. At least Don thought so. And Don thought he could also do it with a reduced number of optics, mm. both of which turned out to be disasters because when we tried to make it with fewer optics that were, you know, shooting straight up as opposed to on these weird angles, mm -hmm. we just didn't get the same kind of information. And the problem was uh, when other things fell through within Sonic and other people involved in the project, I couldn't, we couldn't recreate the original prototype. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> If we had the funds, maybe it'd be possible to go back. Um, but yeah, that's a sad story because I really liked that thing. That was, uh, mm -hmm. I was proud. I think Don liked to make things for his friends. And at that time I was working there pretty much. It was just a team of three of us often. Okay. Um, just me and him and sometimes a programmer who was off site. And so the idea of making a drum that I could play was, was great because he knew I was a drummer. So. Yeah. And I'm guessing that's what led to the uh, Marimba Lumina. Then it's kind of what led to the Lumina. The Lumina uses a different technology, but the the idea of building things for his friends or people he knew he could 
kind of to play them the way he thought they should be played yeah. was a motivation for making controllers. So tell us about the, um, other than the lightning and the thunder, um, there were some more controllers that came out. I think that maybe kind of led up to um, the Marimba Lumina. Right. So the, let's see, what was the order of them? Um, well, I go back to the Orb in 1964. No, that's <laughs> much earlier. Um, so the order would have been wind was currently being thought of and worked on after lightning. And um, there was a prototype of that that Susan Rawcliffe actually performed with, although, again, I'm not sure how well that worked. Um, again, it was sort of a three of us, but Don had worked out most of the hardware already and prototyped it, had a box. Uh, and he was, he claims he was only the software engineer who kept things, held things back, but we'll, <laughs> we may never know. Um, that sensed the location of the tongue and also sensed how fig, far your fingers were from the holes, which were a little bit more like an ocarina. Uh, and also if you were tilting it, so it had a tilt sensor and, um, optical sensors. It had numerous different sensing technologies in it. Uh, after that, we worked on, we were also working on something called RAIN. Um, and that was, oh, that again, Don would say was programmers, I'm sure it was a combination of many things, um, part of funding, but uh, that was sort of like a giant rain stick was the idea, but also maybe more like a shaker. It was the idea. The hardware for that wasn't as complete. Mm. But along the in between there, of course, the Thundercat or the actually the Thunder 2 or the whatever whatever name it was who we were trying to sell it to mm -hmm. um, was in there. And then the Marimba Lumina, which I think was maybe the last of those uh, in 99. We finally came. We actually started it in 80 or 90, not 80. 95, we had a version of it that used uh, light. Uh, we dropped it for a couple of years, picked it back up in 98. Mm -hmm. um, so, and changed the technology to RF. So some projects were started and then stopped. It was just too expensive to build it the way prototype was going to work out. Gotcha. Uh, each key would have been a several op amps. Um, and it just wasn't going to be feasible. So in 99, Don thought of a new idea for the Lumina. And um, so, yeah, so in 99, we finally came out with the gold version. And then in 2000, there was the Marimba Lumina 3.5, which was largely, was that officially a near-field multimedia product. It wasn't actually a Buchla product. Mm -hmm. uh, it was just designed by Don, which part of which allowed me to sort of take it over. It's now sort of something I build exclusively that isn't um, part of Buchla USA. So you're still making those? I do. I still oh, make wow. them. Not very many, mm -hmm. but if people want them. Oh, very cool. Um, I have that absolutedeviation.com website, which is sort of, or marimbalumina.com, whatever, mm -hmm. um, dedicated to that idea. And the first one was um, the gold one. That was kind of a curved shape, right? Yeah. In fact, um, it's, it's up on, if you go see Tool these days, you see it very prominently uh, displayed. I thought, I, yeah, I did see a photo of that in the last month or so since they've been playing supporting their new album yeah danny came out danny had uh, uh eric and i out um in sacramento and um it was great to see it up there it was like 
it looks great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he doesn't play it a hell of a lot. <laughs> um, it's funny that people who play Marimba Lumina, the other, my other customer who bought more recent, uh, the actual new ones, because that Danny bought that um, a long time ago. Because mm-hmm. um, the golds we sold very briefly, and there are only six of them. Mm. Uh, the three five, the ones that I build, actually, John Fishman of Fish actually bought. And so he's oh, got cool. also one behind his drum kit, but it's very different looking. It functioned pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But in the history of that, you got the gold and then you got the three five, which again, um, so Nearfield invested a lot in. And then um, the piano bar, which of course Moog eventually invested in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember I distinctly in 2001 working on it because it was on 9-11 that I remember driving driving it to be a wave soldered oh, wow. uh, one of the early versions of it uh, i don't know when moog officially came out with it but that was our version it was in 2001 we never officially sold mm-hmm. but but yeah so they had piano bar and that also was optics uh if anybody so rf optics infrared um and then it was i guess after the piano bar that we finally got into reissuing I don't know if there was anything in between. Mm-hmm. It's it's always kind of it. I mean, like you say, the you know the it seems like there's so few numbers in all these, and same I guess with all these systems. Um, I mean, I guess it makes sense that you're a company of maybe three or so for for so long. When the two hundred East stuff started come out were there more associates um that kind of came on yeah right yeah exactly so one of the things that motivated the reissues was um a john shots got involved and uh and he is both he has a sort of he had a lot of both of a very interested user of the equipment as well as um someone who could was was excited enough to actually talk to customers and not just be Don's grumpy self on the phone. Uh, and um, he could do some programming as well. And uh, um, he's a good programmer. He's still a programmer, mm-hmm. of course. And uh, that combination of having the, the facility that he had and working with directly with customers allowed us to sort of expand so that we had more people working there. Um, I started, in fact, I really didn't like the idea of, even though I was involved in hardware, a lot of some of the controller stuff, I was pretty much in charge of all the production, Mm. Uh, whether I was prototyping by soldering up the prototypes, but also getting um, the boards to various, you know, having them wave soldered, uh, hiring someone for a while to stuff, help stuff boards before I sent before I drove them down, it would be wave soldered. I, uh, at that point, I, I could exclusively do layout. So it uh, got me out of the shop as often, too, which, which if you're working with Don, is actually kind of a blessing. <laughs> because he can be a bit much, uh, you know, five days a week or however how many days you do. Mm-hmm. And I could also do that if I, if I was on tour. Um, I could do this PCB layout. So Oh, uh, yeah. Once we did reissues, I was pretty much, ex- I started to do as much exclusive um, TPC, PCB layout as possible. And he hired other people. Um, so yeah, people, other people were hired and were sort of working at the shop. Programmers, um, 
who were often worked off site, but other people who came in and did a few last minute soldering things and mm-hmm. whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know how many we were. I, the biggest we were was when we were actually, when we weren't us. When we were, when we were working on the OBMX, when I first worked there, there were, I would wake up in the morning and of course I was working, living upstairs, I would come down and there was like four people plus Don in the living, in his living room, essentially <laughs> programming and soldering. And it was kind of crazy. Wow. And then it, when they all left and it became just the controllers, yeah, it was back to the usual, mm-hmm. but Don least liked to hire people straight out of uh, college and give them an opportunity to build some things. So it wasn't always just me and him and a programmer, but it was often. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then kind of giving people a little stepping stone. I guess right out of uh, yeah you know um i yeah it was nice to work with other people we had a separate accountant if that matters <laughs> <laughs> she came in and she was a pianist so we had a great conversation and which drove don crazy because he was very much a stickler for people being quiet while they worked that's yeah i've heard, yeah, I've heard yeah suzanne i think talked about that <laughs> <laughs> it drove him crazy yeah it's good to hear that you know that was still going on 25 years later after uh yeah you know you you, uh picked your battles with don train came to (laughs) the main thing with don was if you didn't make a mistake and you had a thick skin and you oh i don't know (laughs) he respected you as a musician you could you could work pretty well there yeah 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 but making this if you make mistakes and you didn't earn his trust, and he didn't think you were a talented musician. <laughs> you were gonna have a hard time. So you can maybe kind of float if you got two out of three, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you... <laughs> so I guess to then uh, to fast forward a bit, what kind of do you do you have any insight on what led Don to come to the decision to update the two hundred series and go back to making modules? Um, well, yeah, he had a customer who wanted him to, uh, custom build a few things, um, and he needed the money. (laughs) (laughs) So we built the 297, Mm -hmm. um, which wasn't technically an E-series at the time we were, we weren't thinking about making, he didn't want to reissue anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, he never really did. Um, it was sort of abhorrent to it definitely wasn't his style to reissue something and he had yeah to look back at all let's talk about something or fix something that he had built in the past (laughs) anybody who knows don at the time knows if you had something you needed repaired the last thing you'd want you know the the, having don do it himself was (laughs) it could take a long time um because don also had this sort of liberal policy about repairs and that was you know he would if he made it he would repair it he wouldn't really charge you to repair it mm-hmm. but then also he didn't put it up on his priority list to repair it so i think some people would gladly have paid uh <laughs> if only he could get to it right away that's part of where i came in is i would re i would get packages open them up and immediately try to repair them uh, if i could so that it never saw don's desk otherwise it could get lost there forever <laughs> Um, and I think a lot of people started to appreciate that if I, if I got my hands on it and said, Hey, Donna, I changed this thing or I did this. Do you want to check it out? And it was fixed. Then it could go right back out. But, um, it allowed me to sort of, um, 
dig right into to, uh, old modules and mostly old control. At the time, a lot of things that were coming back were, of course, thunders and whatnot. But mm. nonetheless, um, that wasn't so bad for me. And then, mm-hmm. but yeah, some things did stay on the shelf for a while. So it's a sort of long way of saying Don didn't really like to look back at the past, no yeah. matter what it was. Um, so he decided to make a 297 because it was something he had never built before. Um, and um, in fact, he got it wrong. He he was told he was supposed to build a, uh, something that had sort of like a shepherd's tone. Um, he thought he knew what he was at being asked for. So he built the 260, which was a shepherd tone generator. Yeah. Um, that wasn't what he was asked to build. He was asked to build an infinite phase shifter. So, um, so he had to go and build that as well, because that was actually what was being asked. So we had two modules now. Um, and, uh, from there, um, other people, he started to see modular stuff being picked up and I don't remember what was our first module that was an E, but the 260 uh, E, I think. Well, that was the first non E. They had a, maybe the 260 E came a bit late. I had one. I, I recently sold it. I think it was from. That was a 260. 260 E. Yeah, I think it was from like 2007 or 2000. Okay, that would have been later. Something like that. 2004 is about the time we started. I can look at my I can look at my circuit files actually to tell you which was the first. <laughs> we're really interested. I could go back and go. Oh yeah, that was it. Was the um, was the 255 one of those early ones too? 255 was an early yeah. one as well. Yeah. Um, it's true, and that was also not an E module. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So that was another one that was also commissioned. So these were directly commissioned, um, and I didn't. We didn't know if we were going to sell many. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, so we, those were ones that uh, came out first. Um, and then Don got the idea of um, making, you know, he said, well, if I'm going to make a modular system, I'm not going to make it the same. And he wanted it to save its knob settings. So immediately the idea of, of making um, modules that save their knob settings. And 225 was pretty early. Um and so a preset, the idea of a preset manager, a way to control MIDI. That was um, really ambitious. Um, did how did I've always wondered about that? You know, it, is it the kind of thing where he, you know, if I put thoughts into my 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 mind of what he what he was thinking of, we have computers and computers can save the knob settings, but it's kind of a a challenge because they're all on the bus, and you know, you have to send signals between the modules and the preset manager, how much real, how much thinking and, and architecture and planning kind of went into how the preset system was going to work? Well, you know, the preset system isn't that crazy because it's really the modules which save its their own settings. So all of the intelligence is in the module and all the preset says, let's go to 19. You know, it doesn't know what's in 19. Mm-hmm. Um, it's um, so there's not a lot of information being transferred between the preset manager and the module, uh, except where to go. Um, the thing that that you can, of course, you can download to a, a memory card what's in the module, but the modules themselves hold all their own information. So the the advancement in um, you know in 
and these MCUs that could save without external memory um, allowed us to to put that save those settings inside the modules. And so just using I squared C, we were able to talk to all of them, but we didn't actually transfer that much information between them. Um, only when you download the whole setup to a memory card are you actually taking all those settings and, and sending them off. So That's it's, interesting. You know, I, yeah. yeah. That explains a lot. <laughs> yeah, so if you sent in a module for repair, you should always back it up. Right. Uh, because if you got it, but the other thing is, um, you know, you could theoretically, if the modules are exactly the same, I did this in Berlin where they wanted me to perform on this system. And I said, well, I'm not going to bring my system. You bring yours and download everything I have on the memory card on my system and I'll download it into yours, which is, you know, a little scary because they have a completely different <laughs> modular setup. And I realized that some of the gates didn't sound exactly like the ones I had baked because I had different firmware. I had to make sure I updated my firmware to be the same as their firmware. So that was a little bit of a trick is to make sure everything is updated with the same firmware. And um, for the most part, when you do that, you can actually do what I did. It, it was, it, it for the most part worked, but it was clumsy. It's much easier to just bring your system because you know exactly what it sounds like. Right. And so where, um, where about in that process of, of, I mean, I guess when, I guess when you made that decision of like, all right, let's do this. Um, and I forget how many modules were first kind of released initially. And I'm kind of wondering like what that time span looked like. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, if, I don't know if you may have realized that by now that I, I don't, I've always been on the end where I don't deal. Um, I haven't had to deal with customers directly, which is both a <laughs> uh, you. blessing. Mostly, it's a blessing. <laughs> so people say uh, until you, now, you're like, yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah. Until now. I, uh, you know, people come up to me and say, "Hey, I have this huge system." I say, "Oh, great." I have, I have no idea who you are. Of course, people who I've worked with know exactly who they are because they've um, been talking to them on the phone and they've been, or sometimes they'll say, Hey, I, thanks for that advice on this. Is it, I have no idea what I helped you out with. <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> and they're, and you know, cause I'm both not someone who is very good at remembering everybody's name, but also um, I just, uh, I just don't keep track of all that. And, and somebody else is, is the one selling systems. Someone else is the one mailing them. Mm -hmm. And I, mm -hmm. I kind of like that. And when I did Lightning and Thunder directly with Don, of course, I knew a lot more of the people who were using Thunder and Lightning because I had written their names down. Um, but yeah, you could, I'm sorry if I meet you and I, <laughs> and you have a 224 panel systems and I have no idea who you are. It's, it's not you. <laughs> um, so having worked on Thunder, how what was your involvement or what was kind of the process with the 222 and 223e you know with the um the controller the, there were two different modules you know that did slightly different things with their rings and stuff but <laughs> yeah. yeah well 223 222 was was um i mean it, it that was the the goal was the 222 with the optics i always said to don i i never you know 
the funny thing about working with Don is he was extremely stubborn <laughs> and he didn't want it. He wanted to put the optics in the module, which to me limits you. I mean, it's kind of nice. You could just open up your system and there are the optics. But of course, half the time you have cables that go over the optics. Uh, of course, you push nice and center and uh, you your cables are splayed just perfectly. That's great. But <laughs> I always thought, well, why didn't we learn from lightning one to lightning two that separate optics would be very useful. Also, it would have been a lot easier to build because the 222 was such a pain in the butt to build. Uh, putting those optics in and fitting them into the module just so um, just made for, um, you know, sometimes I envy the Eurorack people who can just go, oh, we'll just make it another, you know, half inch wider. No big deal. But our modules are specific, you know, width. So, yeah. Uh, so anyway, it, did, it was a pain to build and it was expensive, but the the other thing was a lot of the rings weren't always reliable. Um, I'd love to make another set of rings, and don't hold me to it. But um, <laughs> we would all love for you. We'd to love make to see set it. Of rings. Oh, good. I think there are a number of people who would like that. It's actually the the rings exist. Uh, I have a couple of the older ones which work fine. It's just they're keeping them up to in shape and. Um, I think if we get a nice 3D mold rather than what we were doing, it would make assembly a lot easier. That was a big pain in the butt. But there's a lot of, um, so that's really just a project that, if anybody wants to volunteer making a 3D mold, <laughs> <laughs> I'll gladly put a circuit board in there and we'll have rings again. I'll, uh, I'll just go buy yeah. a 3D printer and we'll yeah. make that happen. Yeah. yeah, 3D print it, 3D print it, 3D mold. It's just, I didn't really mean mold. I really meant 3D print. <laughs> But you know what I mean. Yeah, well, yeah, but, uh, we have a 3D printer. I think if if that may be one thing that we we uh, they do in Minneapolis anyway. Hmm. They have a 3D printer, so I'm sure it could be down the road. We'll have rings, but there has to be a reason for rings. And uh, we may there are Lightning threes that actually could be sold right now oh. if we hmm. let them out the door, and that would be another reason to have rings because we don't we're not selling 222s at the moment. So what happened is to create long story actually to get to why is there 222 and 223. I was thinking about doing this interview actually more like Don, where I just have one word answers, yeah. but apparently that's not working. <laughs> um, nonetheless, uh, I was uh, so we were creating the 222, but people, but Don created the 223 because. Well, people were, we were having some trouble with the rings, and then people were saying, well, wouldn't, wouldn't it be great if this had an arpeggiator? And so Don said, fine, I'll make a version of it where we lose the optics because they're a pain in the butt, and we'll put an arpeggiator up there. And then people started sending back, because Don said you could, re you could replace one with the other for free. Don started getting 222s back from people for 223s. Mm. Oh, <laughs> so at that point, we're like, okay, we're retiring the 222. Um, I don't even know what happened to all those 222, oh, to be honest. They're in a closet somewhere. They may be, um, <laughs> but they're not in my closet. <laughs> uh, I wish I had one. No skeleton modules in your closet is what you're saying. I don't have a skeleton module of that in my <laughs> closet, no. The things I ended up with to start with as a system were only things that I had when Don um, and I toured Mexico City. And uh, finally, I got a system after that. Everything else, I would always, controllers, I had as soon as they were 
available and ready, partly because I was the guy testing them. But mm -hmm. modules, it wasn't necessarily the case. He was a little bit more um, stringent about letting go. Of, and it, if you just had one module, it wasn't like you could do a ton with it anyway. Yeah. So I didn't actually have a system until, I don't know when we first went to Mexico City, but that was the first time. All right. Well, we have Peter Nybor from Sensel today, works on product strategy there. Thanks for joining the show, Peter. Absolutely. I'm glad to be here. So we had a great conversation with Joel uh, before you joined about controllers and 222s and 223s and, and the Buchla Thunder, which dovetails nicely into you joining us to talk about the Sensel Morph and the Buchla Thunder overlay. Um, so maybe we can just kind of jump into the, the burning question. How did that happen? Uh, it happened very uh, gradually. I think um, it's funny because when I first started working with Sensel, uh, I guess like two or three years ago, uh, I was talking to a good friend of mine, Kurt Kurosaki, who is a synthesist um, and collector. And he has a, he actually has one of the original music easels. And he saw, I was showing him the, the Sensel Morph and he's like, you guys should do a Thunder overlay. I was like, yeah, that's kind of a weird play for what we're doing, but I was like, yeah, that's something we should do. <laughs> and um and and then just through the through the you know, the sort of like community of music technology and trade shows and things like that, running into Joel. Um, I think Joel might have had a similar sentiment like, hey, maybe we could do this. And I'm like, yeah, we should think about it. And we just kept, you know, we kept thinking about it and kept returning to it and kept running into each other. And um and then so finally we just said, well, let's let's do this because it, it just really lends itself to um, to Don's design and it all fits with the hand and everything. And it just kind of gives people an opportunity to try some of uh, Don's ideas in a, you know, in a kind of more universal package because it's, you know, just a simple USB device. So um, I was really happy to be able to do that. Um, Joel and I know each other from you know, many years ago, just from being in the Bay Area. I used to work with, I used to work with a company called Livid Instruments, um, and we made kind of off the off the wall MIDI controllers. Okay, hold, um, hold on, hold on. You didn't just yeah. make, Livid made incredible controllers. We just have to, <laughs> we just have to throw that out there. Okay, well, I yeah. I tend to be <laughs> modest. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, and so, and I had known Joel through. I think. Hey, you know, we had talked about doing some engineering work or something like that. I don't, I don't even remember. I was going to do some layout for some livid project, and I don't, I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened either. Um, I guess you know something else worked out, but um, yeah. So it's just you know through the common interest of music technology and you know different designs for control, um, it's kind of how it all came together. So it's it's kind of a nice. Uh, result of our industry because there tend to be those cooperations a little bit more than say in like say like automotive or something like that <laughs> yeah those trade secrets aren't don't run as as deep i guess <laughs> <laughs> no but there's, a, there's also a fascination you know and uh mm -hmm. you know and a, and just a desire to to make kind of weird things happen and i think a lot of music technology is born out of uh, someone's personal need that becomes uh, something that they want to spread as more of like a product and um, and that it works. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, the making. I mean, to be honest, making their ideas are a dime a dozen. I mean, for making controllers, uh, <laughs> getting them from that point of view of hey, this thing does this fun, nice one trick pony thing to an instrument that does multiple things and can be used in flexible ways is is a huge gap between the two. And, um, you know, Don and myself, and certainly, you know, the potential of the, the, um, the morph was, was one of those things that, yeah, this could be a complete instrument. It's not just a, I push, you know, it's not just pressure. It's not just, uh, one thing. And I think that's always the goal with alternative controllers is, is something that's really flexible enough that it does something initially that's kind of cool, but then it's also deep enough to really express what you want to do once you've realized that one cool thing is mm-hmm. you want to do more than just that. Um, so it seemed to me a sort of a natural, I mean, there was a, the Thunder itself never had great pressure. Pressure was the one thing that it wasn't great at. It was pretty good at location. Um, but I thought, well, you know, I'd known about the Morph before and uh, from someone, uh, from Tim Thompson, who had, who uses them, multiple ones uh, simultaneously without an overlay. And, um, and I realized when we started talking about a Thunder overlay that it's a little smaller. And so I had to print it out and it, we made uh, accommodations to make it. Now it actually feels like actually does fit two hands pretty well. Initially, uh, the 223 I thought was even a little small compared to the Thunder, but mm. I've gotten to kind of enjoy this size. It's, it's worked out. Yeah, I, it's funny. I did a, um, I shot a video with Peter Freeman uh, a couple months ago, and it's something that I think we're going to release, and hopefully it'll be done in January. It's kind of in the editing room, and um, he he busted out an original Thunder, and so we shot some video of him, you know, using the original Thunder and the and the Thunder overlay, and um, cool. yeah, it's definitely uh, it's definitely kind of a, was really fun to see that, and. Um, you know, and I think I think another thing that that really helped was with the thunder and making it sort of like making it real for people was, um, as far as as far as our our re re incantation of it, um, is the is, you know with the MPE stuff, um, mm-hmm. because it just makes it so much more useful, um, even though it is even though MPE is an obscure standard of you know MIDI polyphonic expression, yeah sort of a substandard of MIDI, um, it's slowly gaining traction and, you know, you can build around it without big risk. Um, if you're mm-hmm. starting a new polyphonic synthesizer, it's, you know, if you just follow a few rules, it's like, well, I can make it MPE compatible and, yeah. uh, you know, and so that has been a big help to making it an accessible design. Well, in my personal opinion, the MPE part of it is actually what I've enjoyed about it. I got one because... I got a more for the Buchla and Thunder overlay to play with it, but I found out that with Omnisphere, the uh, the MPE stuff, I was able to do some some pretty amazing things that I couldn't do on any of my other controllers because none of them were MPE. I don't have a Rolly Seaboard or a instrument, for example. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty exciting. Yeah, it's a it's a natural companion for that, and I think it, the cool thing is is that the Thunder's design uh, sort of takes you out of the piano centric design that. Um, you know, for example, the seaboard has, and, uh, you know, and the, and the, the instrument has the, the grid, but, you know, each, each of your affordance for that is, you know, is designed for like a fingertip. So it's kind of like a, a fret model. 
Um, mm-hmm. Whereas with the with the Thunder, you really kind of get this you you get a lot of space <laughs> yeah. to explore the sounds, and it really kind of slows you down and takes you out of habits. But it still sounds like music, you know. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, Don would have been into, is into any controllers that sort of make you think differently about music. Um, we, you know, Don's famous for not liking the 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 keyboard, but actually, that's a little bit more of a of a um, Morton Sabotnik thing. He's he doesn't have a problem with the keyboard. It's just that it doesn't make you think creatively about music. Uh, mm-hmm. Typically, it makes you it gives you puts you into boxes. As soon as you start, you see a keyboard, you start thinking about music in a certain way. Whereas you see this alternative controller with this non-defined surface in front of you, you can do anything. And, and actually I thought what really made the, the thunder overlay um, most useful is the idea that this, because none of the other morph overlays had presets. Of course that's because for the most part, you see a piano, that's what a piano does. It does the note that a piano does. Whereas with the morph overlay, having the nine presets uh, really allows you to redefine uh, each setup and is much more like a Thunder in that way. The Thunder had eight, uh, only because it was it was in a way limited to eight. But uh, really, that, that really made it, it come to life for me. Then it was like, okay, this is a thing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That I mean, the, the presets, because it, it does open up like all the different, like, oh, I want to use this as a slider thing. Oh, I want to use it uh, to control this very specific soft, you know, this very, not software, but very specific piece of hardware. So you need to match your device to that thing, but you don't want to have to reprogram it all the time. You, know, you can just set up a bunch of things. Though I think, you know, for example, like our the drum pad overlay, um, you know, with MPE and with that is actually a really fun thing because you have those really big circles and circular shapes. It's like, well, these don't have to be percussive, you know? Um, and that one is one of the things that I feel like oh, that could really benefit from the presets. So could that be something in the future for those, for the drum pad? Yeah. I mean, that is, it's something that we have definitely in our queue um, for some of our other overlays, but it's, there's a few complications with it. Um, the nice thing about the the thunder overlay is it was it was baked in from the start. We're like, well, we have this, you know, one of the things we really wanted to to respect was the, the sort of the programming bar um, because it it looks really cool and it's also like you know it was a functional part of the original thunder mm-hmm. um, at the very top and you know so we had knocked around some designs with it without it. And then we were like, we got to have it because it looks cool. We're like, what do we do with it? (laughs) You know, because it was like it didn't the original paradigm of it as a data slider and data entry item didn't really fit. But then it was like, oh, it can just be a a shift key for presets. And then, yeah, it all came together and it's like, oh, that it's natural and it, it works really nicely. I have the the Thunder and I have a 223E for my Buchla. And when I first got the Thunder, I thought, okay, this is just a MIDI version, you know, very familiar to the 223E controller, mm-hmm. but I, I don't use them in the same way. I, I don't use my, my uh, Sensil with my Buchla at all, um, but that's okay. I use it with Arteria's Easel, you know, to, to, to kind of see what that experience is like. But the way that I interact with the Morph is very different from the way I interact with the uh, 223. Um, they, they feel different. They look different. 
the way I, I strike or, and I thought, you know, what is, what is the reason for this? And I think it comes down to just the way that I patch my bukla. You know, I'm, I'm running to velocity or something like that. And with the morph, I'm not doing that. I'm really using it like a, like a MIDI controller and I do all the configuration and such in my software. Mm-hmm. And then I use more of my fingers on the morph than I do on the 223, where I, like 23, I'll strike one key at a time. But on ah. the morph, I have more of my fingers on it at the same time. So I thought that was mm-hmm. kind of interesting to realize that, you know, you'd, I don't really, I didn't really think about it until I looked down at my hands and realized I was, I had them all contorted on, onto the thunder overlays. Pretty <laughs> fascinating. Um, so well, I'm also happy to hear that you have a way uh, that you still find the 223 uh, <laughs> a, good, a good way to interact with. Them. Oh, I can't live without it. It's yeah. it's essential to to the way I make music. And you know the, the the cool thing about these we talk about them as performance instruments or performance controllers, but as a composing tool, it also force it it, it releases me as a composer from thinking about what the note is going to be when I press a key. Now I, I have a lot of keyboard synthesizers and I love them, but you know, if I press middle C, unless I've retuned the synth somehow, it's, you know, it's middle C, that's what I want. I play a chord, I get a chord, but I have to program voltages into my 223 and those voltages are just going to be sent from whatever key I press. So it's really up to me and the controller is my composition tool so I can hear the differences between the timbres. And I do the exact same thing with the Thunder and Omnisphere. Mm. So it, and there's a completely different paradigm, but yeah. I'm not pressing C and Omnisphere is not giving me a C. I'm pressing a, a MIDI value. And based on what that CC value is, I'm controlling some parameter in Omnisphere that might be you know, a whole bunch of different things going on at the same time. But that, that was an, a really cool experience with that too, because I didn't have to learn how to use a new controller. It was very familiar. I just had to leverage my MIDI knowledge a little bit to, to figure out how to configure you know, Omnisphere to do that. Sure. So it's kind There's of a, a long-winded way of asking. <laughs> yeah. When you talk to your customers of the Morph that come from all kinds of different backgrounds, with the Thunder overlay specifically, what are you hearing from them about how they're using it? The artists that you work with, you know, the general customers, what are they doing with the, with the Thunder? There's there's some people who are like I just want this as as like sliders they want touch sliders um, but then I think then other people are using it like more of like as a sound design thing where um, you know because it is it's like MPE out of the box and it it gives you that ability to sort of like slide around more and really take advantage of the the polyphony and 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 uncover that like oh I'm really like I can really sort of dial in the filter on on the high note versus, you know, versus the low yeah. note of these and, and, you know, and sort of modulate them. Um, so I, you know, there's that, there's that aspect of it that people are using, using the, the thunder for. Um, and then, yeah, I just, we just see like, you know, videos of people just, you know, just sort of like exploring timbre more. Like that's the thing that I, mm-hmm. I noticed is that um, it kind of like, you have this opportunity to explore timbre, and so people are doing that, and that, that's that's pretty exciting to me because it's it's cool to see that, like, you know, with like a you know with a drum pad or, or the MPC layout, you know, that's really gears itself towards sampling and and beat making, you know, and yeah. and percussion, and like this is like you put your hands on, and so it's more like giving massage to sound <laughs> rather than um, you know than trying to strike it or pluck it. Yeah, 
Um, yeah, I was going to say that you know you were talking about the the Arturia easel. I, there's a the a Moderna Labs Alto is a really good companion for the Ooh. Thunder because yeah. um, that really you know it really has a bucle bucle e bucle ish sound and for very good reasons um, <laughs> and um, and it's MPE capable and you know and it's so it's like uh, it's a really cool way to sort of like explore that it's because you can patch things together pretty easily um we just did like a bundle offer with them for the holidays and we're still doing that um through the end of the year um but yeah randy jones does just fantastic work yeah, <laughs> he's the he's the programmer and head of moderna labs yeah he's, he's brilliant it's it's crazy what they're <laughs> what they figured out i i have alto um I've just been, I'm kind of all in that mode of, I need to only use one thing at a time. So right now, mm -hmm. right now it's Omnisphere, Absolutely. you know, Omnisphere <laughs> and my Buchla over there, but I just got a Hydra synth. So I'll probably dump Omnisphere for a while and play around with my Hydra synth. But <laughs> what is Hydra synth? I'm not familiar oh, with that Oh, that's one. the new um, wavetable synthesizer from a Chinese company. And it has oh, yeah, yeah, polyphonic yeah, yeah. Oh, right, aftertouch. Right, right. From and, uh, uh, Asian, Asian yeah, musical. Yep. Yes. Poly, a, poly aftertouch is was like a dream come true in a in a keyboard layout. Yeah, so that was the thing that um, speaking of Peter Freeman, he was using the old Synclavier keybed. Um, so that's like the centerpiece of his studio. He has the Synclavier keybed, and that has all all the poly aftertouch stuff. And he's just like, oh, it's the greatest keyboard ever. <laughs> <And it's, laughs> you know, he also he he also has Synclavier like the the full machines too. Um, fascinating like he's got those things running and they're the heart of his studio <laughs> i couldn't believe it yeah it's like maintaining old computers it, yeah but he's just got them you know he's got them dialed in and you know they look like I, i'm like i can't believe they're running and he uses them he the thing is is he was talking about their um this is a real diversion but he's talking about their uh, DAs, you know, their or the ADs and DA signal path. He's like, I just use it as a mix bus because I love the sound of it so much. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was like, wow, you're a deep man. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Joel, you've been working on the, the 208C. Um, I, I don't know. When did that start yeah. for you? When did it start? Uh, well, it started when I realized, why are we making all these uh, why are we making a 208 with all these daughter boards? Uh, <laughs> that's that's the question everybody's wanted to answer, and there you have it, everybody. That's why the 208. Well, you know the the, the thing started with uh, them asking Don. You know, Don said, well, "Let's just make it like we made the old one, and we're with the same. You know, we could plug in the new daughter board to an old daughter board." And I'm like, "I don't think anybody's doing that." So. Um, Let's just like throw it all, you know, it is a bit of a squeeze, but not that much. Um, cause we had gone our, you know, our production people, the person I was, you know, working with on, there was a certain point making the 200 series, for instance, the, the reissue, you noticed that it, there was a slow progression from through hole to surface mount, which maybe some people don't like so much for certain things, but for production, uh, a lot of these people making other production it they started to not service their through hole production uh lines and so it became a lot easier to just go with service mount plus a lot of components stopped being available in through hole mm -hmm. so i was already uh ready to move to surface mount for the 200 to the 208 rather 
so we did that for the daughter boards. Uh, and then it was like, well, why don't we move? Why don't we, why don't we do what I was doing? So I had actually in the back of my, um, whenever I had a little bit of free time, I usually did something to sort of move that project forward. Then it was a certain point where, um, they were making 208s and I said, how many are you selling? Cause I actually have no idea how many get sold. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, we should just stop, stop this nonsense <laughs> and I'll put it all on one board. And while I'm at it, uh, since we're going to move away from the idea of a pure, um, easel in that is okay. Maybe the pure easel had to have daughter boards for some people. I don't know why it would, mm-hmm. but since we're going to do that, why don't we uh, do some of the things that some people had been asking for? There was one person briefly with the company who said who wanted to make a separate uh, module to the left of the 208 that would have FM input on one thing and then it would have direct out to the complex oscillator and it would have the other output things that sometimes we put on the program card. And I thought his idea was completely ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, he was a great, you know, it, but it motivated me to realize that the t- whole top row of the 208, I could fit a lot of what he was asking for. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, and it totally made sense. I actually was always a little bit bothered by the top of the 208 because the layout uh, in terms of the order of the inputs and outputs don't make much sense to me. Um, and I don't think are intuitive. And there's room for other uh, outputs and inputs. So Mm -hmm. I just came up with a different uh, IO on the top, which sort of gave rise to the whole idea that, okay, this is now a little bit different. Um, I'm now going to throw noise in there because people always wanted noise. It's going to be almost a hidden feature. In fact, I didn't tell people about it until um, (laughs) it came out. Uh, You thought you should tell people before people start complaining about how they're getting noise? (laughs) Until the extra noise. (laughs) What is this? Yeah, Um, you're welcome. You know, I actually, if you looked at somebody who has a uh, early 208C, they'll see that it's a jumper from uh, just ground to so that the switch wouldn't do anything to noise because I was a little bit worried that, okay, if I'm going to throw noise into the system, if I'm going to have anything bleeding into any other part of the system, I probably don't want noise. Yeah. So yeah. I'm going to, before I commit to it, I'm going to, I'm going to jumper it in. So, um, but I always like this idea that when you move a switch, something happens. And that was one of those switches that you went to the auxiliary input. If you didn't have anything plugged in, you didn't hear anything. Mm-hmm. So now you actually hear something. Um, but there were basically there were some of the things that uh, if you know what's different about the 208C and the 208, that just to me were sort of low hanging fruit that anybody who uses the modular system would like, you know, in, uh, direct inputs to gates and direct outputs to oscillators. And they sound, they're good oscillators and they're good gates. And so why wouldn't you want to have them independently available? Um, mm-hmm. So that and... Uh, um, the layout below that allowed for a few other inputs. I just felt it needed to happen. I could make it happen. So yeah, well, I mean, you brought a lot out that was already kind of under the hood that people were accessing. Yeah, through. people were making all these elaborate, you know, cards, and that's great. But um, some of that stuff didn't have to be on a card. It mm-hmm. could actually be right there on the panel. Yeah. Um, so why not make that available? Because the the potential future of it is that if people want to. Um, 
it may be that the program card will go away and that'll become a display for presets, mm. you know, but mm. then you'll still have these inputs. Uh, that could be coming down the road. We'll see. And so mm -hmm. the 28C also has a richer MIDI implementation, right? Than the, right. So that, that's right. That provides some more and in interesting possibilities when using, for example, the Sensil Morph. <laughs> exactly. So, it brings us back to Sensil Morph. If, if I may, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's why you see. Can you tell um, us about that? How that how that looks? How that would work? Well, it's not uh it's not uh what it will look like. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. So what it what it will look like is sort of similar to if I did post a video not too long ago of what I was doing with uh, with our MIDI input and uh, Marimba Lumina. So I'm using the Marimba Lumina uh, on different channels and also to control the oscillators separately or together if I send it to the keyboard input and I'm controlling timbre and I'm controlling modulation amount. Uh, all of those variables uh, go into, you can assign to controllers and then control the uh, easel width. So there are about, um, I guess there are about eight inputs and a few other pulse. You can control each of the pulses independently. Mm. So all of that is broken out on a separate uh, header, which wasn't possible with the 208 because in order to get access to all those CVs, you have to use a card, but then you've got something in the card slot. Yeah. So, and then if you had a card doubler and you could, it gets be really awkward to do all of that control always with the card. So this mm -hmm. really is internally done. Mm -hmm. And you just plug a MIDI cable in and, and internally we have a MIDI board that does that. That same MIDI board that I use to control um, with standard five pin DIN MIDI or USB MIDI will be used uh, with the Morph, but it'll go through a um, host. So there'll be a host option that's a plug-in board that will allow you to host the um, Morph directly. And that'll allow you to um, also access those same controls. So it had... It has a UART connection to that same CPU. Another way you could do it now, actually, without that, is you could you could plug in your morph to a, a computer and then send MIDI through your computer mm. to the same MIDI setup through a USB MIDI. Yeah. So before the host option is is ready, you could you could actually do that. Yeah, and there's there's also like the there's there's like little USB host devices. There's like uh, the retro kits. RetroKits is a company from the Netherlands that makes the some really nifty little MIDI utility devices. Um, one of them is just a host, um, so you can plug in a USB MIDI device and and then it turns it into five pin MIDI. Um, and then there's one from Kenton that does something something similar. And I've been using those. Um, we have kind of a, a really cool demo with the Korg Mini Log, um, where we sort of we cover the we cover the key bed. <laughs> on the Korg mini log with, you know, like a piece of acrylic. So it's like, you don't need this piano. And we just put the morph on top of that. Um, mm. And it's really, a, it's really just a wonderful way to control that synth. Um, and I've also been using like uh, URAC stuff with the morph too, which is, yeah. you know, and again, using like a USB to CV thing, like the expert sleepers and endorphins and poly and all those guys make those things. Um, and it's just, it's, exciting <laughs> it's really exciting to just turn all those touches into into voltages and and then just start patching things up you just get some really cool results um and it's a it's just a nice way to sort of take that you know the usb thing which is you know kind of like you know it's it's a computer thing and you know kind of free yourself mm -hmm. from that 
um, which uh, for all of its mystic properties, it, um, you know, of the computer's mystic properties, I should say, uh, it's nice to uh, get yourself freed from that so you don't feel like you're at work. Yeah. It, it's funny you mentioned that. I mean, as a quick aside, I wanted to, to prep for this episode, I wanted to use my um, morph with my little LEM3 um, case, my Buchla LEM3. It has a MIDI input and a, US, a MIDI DIN input and a MIDI USB input and like a little module that turns out and runs it on the bus and all this cool stuff. But, and, and I work for Microsoft and I've been in the industry a long time and I'm a pretty smart guy. I could not figure out how to make that work. Because ah. <laughs> it's like, okay, I can run it through my Mio and get a USB into that and then five pin out. But the USB input is the type B and I don't have a type B to a to micro USB that the tinsel yeah, needed. That wouldn't work though. Cause the type, that type yeah. B, that type B indicates that it's just a, a device. It's not a host. So yeah, but it's yeah. supposed, it's supposed to support MIDI over USB the oh. 225 H. And yeah. So you see, okay. you know, like yeah. we could talk about that all day. But that, that was one of those things where I thought, you know, MIDI's been around for so long. It's five pin and then we have no USB and we need to go to MPE. And I wonder if it'll sort of be like how eventually every car sold in the United States has to have a backup camera. So yeah. at some point in the future, every car will have a backup camera because all the old cars that don't will have been crushed or, you know, otherwise recycled. So I wonder if we'll ever have that with MIDI where we'll just tell our grandkids about, you know, DIN and, MIDI over USB, and instead, well, we have this one technology that doesn't require different types of cables. But I still <laughs> struggle with making that work. But I, I'm going to try going through my computer. We'll see if I can make that work. <laughs> yeah, that might work. I mean, yeah, those other kits, those other interfaces work, and that—that's the idea that why we wanted the option of a host directly into the thing. We didn't want to make it complicated, but uh, for the 208C, that is. But um, yeah, we haven't. Maybe I'll buy a retro kit. Yeah, it's yeah. A, but it's, it's a really compelling way to work with this stuff. Um, like even just like with like I have a Korg Volca Beats, and uh, just using the morph with that, you know, you'd think that would be the most basic thing. Like, what could you possibly do? But the Volca Beats, they you know they have some weird little modulations in there, and you can you can access them with MIDI CCs, and so you put those CCs on your as part of your touch programs and. You know, so your location and where you strike it, it, it all, you know, it's all modulating what's happening on that synthesizer. And it's like, oh, this drum machine's super cool. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, this is a this is a playable thing. There's a lot of variety in here. And, you know, I wouldn't have I would not have uncovered that by, um, you know, using its onboard sequencer or, or even just like hooking up a, a keyboard to it. You know, it's really a it's it makes it sort of an exotic bird. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show, both of you, Joel and Peter. Um, yeah, absolutely. So uh, sure. for more information on the Sensil Morph, is it just Sensil.com? Uh, Sensil.com slash morph okay. is the best way to get information about it. And uh, I believe we have a Sensil.com slash thunder where we have a Bukla thunder overlay. Or no, Sensil.com slash Bukla. Um, is a thunder overlay sort of detail. Um, yeah, and our YouTube channel has a lot of example videos from the mundane to the weird to the, <laughs> you know, exciting and, you know, artist profiles and see what people are doing with it. 
um, it's pretty, it's been, pre- it's been pretty great to just sort of like put this technology out there, um, and get it in creative hands and see what people want to do with it. Yeah. I actually like using it for hotkeys for circuit board land. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a killer app. <laughs> I, I use the video editor overlay every time I make a source of uncertainty video. So yeah. Yes. Oh, cool. <laughs> Well, you could use a thunder. Um, let's not go overboard, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, Joel, um, you know, unless you want to tell us the next uh, 200E module that you're secretly working on. Um, no. <laughs> uh, okay, fine. Um, it's a two, 224. <laughs> a 224. Uh, yeah, there's always a sec- I uh, There's, uh, yeah. There's always, no, yeah, good. Finding the numbers is not a... You're gonna run out. <laughs> no, it's all right. Um, <laughs> you can always add an E or a C or a D. <laughs> you know, we could stop with the two hundred and move to, dare I say, another number, but um, I won't. Um, but yeah, I'll. Uh, I'll. Uh, well, you know what? Finishing up. Uh, where do I start? <laughs> you know, I, I wish you had said. We could move to a number, another number like three hundred, and then we could spread a rumor that Bukla is going to come out with the three hundred again. Uh, three hundred, yes, right. I know exactly. What what number do I move to? Seven hundred. Um, oh wait, no. seven hundred. Yes. Oh, Technically, not lightning one is a uh, nine hundred, and um, <laughs> uh, lightning two is one thousand, and I don't know. I don't think we at a certain point we stopped with the numbers on the controllers, but. Uh, <laughs> And you can still get, you know, Marimba Lumina. And if you want me to give it a number, I will. Well, yeah. Where um, where should they contact you uh, to to get one? Uh, so you can go to marimbalumina.com or absolutedeviation.com. They're the same website, cool. to be honest. Uh, and all the info should be there. Very cool. Awesome. Well, thanks again, guys. And uh, yeah, have yeah, a good rest of your day. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you. We'd like to thank Joel and Peter for being on the show. You can find more information about the Marimba Lumina at absolutedeviation.com, more about the 208C at bukla.com, and more about the Sensil Morph Thunderpad at sensil.com. Tim Held has had some great guests on his show, Podular Modcasts. Check out his episode with musician Ian Body from a few weeks back, and he has Alex Anderson from WND coming up shortly. Also check out Ed Ball and Ben Wilson's show, Esoteric Modulation. They've been diving into the world of tape recently. And speaking of our friend DivKid, he just had a new module come out uh, in collaboration with Instro called the Oct. It's a eight analog triangle LFO module and it's all unsynced and tuned musically to help produce uh, drift and phasing effects between them. You can find out more about that module on Ben's YouTube page, DivKid, or you can go to instromodular.com. Be sure to visit waveformmagazine.com to get a free print magazine delivered in the mail. It's like Christmas Day every time. If you want to help support the show, you can do so through Patreon at patreon.com slash source of uncertainty. Find out more about the show and your hosts or contact us through our website at sourceofuncertainty.audio. We'd love to hear from you. Find us on Instagram at Source of Uncertainty. And until next month, Happy New Year. Happy New Year.